Welcome this morning. It's very nice to see all of you here today. Uh, always a good day to worship God. For those of you who don't know who I am, I am Dave Mergens, and I am the pastor of adult formation here at Alexandria Covenant. And if you've been with us for the last couple of weeks, you would know that we are in week three of a series on the book of Colossians. And no virus is going to stop us from getting into God's word today. Amen? So here we go. Uh, one of the things that you'll want to follow along with today, if you have it, and if you have the YouVersion app, all of the scriptures that I'll be reading from and my sermon notes, if you want to fill in the blanks ahead of time, which I don't recommend, but they're all in here if you want to, uh, to check those out. They're all there. So Paul started the church in Colossae very strategically. Uh, the Apostle Paul was preaching for close to two years in the town of Ephesus, which was on the, on the coast. And we know that because of the Roman road system, there was access to a lot of towns, including towns like Colossae. And so as we're thinking about how this church came to be, we know that a man by the name of Epaphras, who Paul mentored, was the one to bring the good news of Jesus Christ to the town of Colossae. So Paul never actually even went to Colossians that we know of. Uh, he simply did so through one of his mentees, that he sent him there, he equipped him, and he planted a church vicariously through this man. And so this church was brand new, brand new to their faith and freedom in Christ. It was a new thing for them. It was exciting. They had been Gentiles, and they obviously still were Gentiles, but now they were Gentiles who had access to the true God because of Jesus Christ, which previously they did not. And so we have a brand new church and a man who is mentoring the church leaders, and we have the letter to the Colossians. And so in chapter 1, as you heard Trinity preach two weeks on chapter 1, a uh, very beautiful uh, scripture that really puts Christ in the position of preeminence, which is a fancy word to say numero uno. That Christ was one. He was first in our thinking. He's first in our authority. He's first in all things over all of creation. And that is who Jesus is. And Paul establishes that very clearly with this young church. Right? So brand new church. What does Paul preach first? That Jesus is God. That the fullness of deity dwells in him. And that there is no one besides him that we ought to fear or put faith in. And as we walk today through chapter 2, which we will get through the entire chapter in one time today, I want to start with this question. What new freedom in your life has radically changed how you look at life? What new freedom have you experienced that has radically changed the way that you look at life? It was the summer of my 16th birthday. And my parents came to me, and they said, Dave, we are going to give you for a birthday present $200 towards either a pedal bike or a car. <laughs> I was very motivated to get a car. So I started shaking every bush down, trying to find any lead I could on a car that I could get within the means of the budget that they gave me to spend. Brand new to driving, had a license. My mom had a Ford Taurus station wagon that was old with a hatchback back when hatchbacks were not cool, and it was absolutely a grocery getter, and I did not want to be seen dead in that thing. Like, that was just like, I can't be in this thing, which now I drive a minivan, so I guess things have changed. But anyhow, 
So, 16 years old, and I, my friend had just told me, hey, my aunt just moved back from California, and she brought this car with her, and she doesn't drive it, it just sits in the driveway all the time. It was a 1979 Pontiac Firebird, the one in the picture behind me. And I thought to myself, self, I'm going to walk in there, and I'm going to offer $200 for this car, and we'll see what happens. <laughs> and I went up to my friend's aunt, and I said, and you know, I'll shake it with my, said, all right. I'll give you 200 bucks for the car, and she said, deal. I'm like, whoa, really? Like, I tried not to act surprised because I didn't want her, and I was hoping it wasn't a joke or something, but she sold me this car for $200, and she just wanted it out of her driveway. She wasn't driving it. She was older. It wasn't of interest to her. It needed a little bit of work, um, you know, batteries, cables, that kinds of things. I mean, nothing too major, and so for 200 bucks, I walked out of there with my first car, a 1979 Pontiac Firebird, and I was the only one in my class at the time with a driver's license, so I went from, like, the bottom of the social standing way up to the top very fast, and it was awesome. Every, every opportunity that had previously not been there for me started opening up. People wanted to hang out with me that didn't. I was able to get a job, making five fifteen an hour, busting tables. It was great. Um, I was able to go play golf whenever I want, go through the McDonald's drive-thru. I mean, all these opportunities opened up. I had a new freedom, and everything I looked at looked different because I had this new freedom. And I have to imagine that in a similar way, but even more life-altering, the Colossian people all of a sudden had a freedom that they had not yet had. They had Jesus Christ. And the freedom that comes with knowing the God of this universe, having access to the true God, whom they'd probably heard about. They'd probably heard the stories about what God did to those who opposed the nation of Israel. They probably heard the stories of his great might and his power. They knew who this God was, but now all of a sudden they had access to him through the death and resurrection of the person of Jesus Christ. And so they were living now with this awesome new freedom. And Paul, probably much like my dad, was a father and mentor who was walking me through a new freedom, was walking this young church through this amazing opportunity that they had to know God. And so you get a young church, you get a mentor, and you see this interchange of how to think, how to act, how to live in relationship to Christ, which is brand new to these people. And that is how we read the book of Colossians, because that was Paul's letter to this young church and to the other churches that started in that region. And so if you'll open with me to Colossians chapter 2, starting with verse 1, let's dive in. Paul starts it like this. For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea and for all who have not seen me face to face that their hearts may be encouraged being knit together in love to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery which is Christ in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments, for though I am absent in body, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. So you can almost hear this in his tone, right? This, this urging from a mentor, a spiritual father, to a group of people he had never even met before. A lot of these people didn't even know him. They only knew that Epiphras was mentored by this man. 
And here Paul is just urging. You see Paul's plea and the good start of the Colossian church in this first section of Colossians 2. Paul's plea and the good start of the Colossian church. So here you have Paul. What would you say? What would you say? Whenever you see a for or therefore, you always look at what was before. So Paul, in the first word, in the first verse in this chapter, says, for I want you to know. He just followed this beautiful illustration of who Jesus should be positioned in their hearts and their minds and their thinking. Paul is relentlessly focused on how Christ should be first. And now in chapter 2, the letter moves into how this new, ch- new freedom should change them. So you have the truth of who Jesus is, and now you have, here's how you should be as a result of this truth. Now you have a new foundation, and this is what this should look like. You see, Paul had yet to see them face to face, yet he desired deeply to encourage them and to safeguard their new faith. I, I think about this too. When, when I first started driving, my dad just didn't give me the keys after we fixed up this Pontiac Firebird and said, ah, just go for it, have fun. Oh no, <laughs> he sat me down and we had the talk, right? About how to drive, what was responsible, where I could have fun, what that looked like. Um, I'm sure he didn't tell me all the stories right in that moment because he didn't want to be a bad example, but I learned them later. And, and, and it was just a fun experience of, okay, what do I do, what do I don't do? And in the same way, Paul's coaching these people. He's saying, here's your new freedom in Christ. Here are all the opportunities you have, but this is what you have to look out for. Because Paul had started a few churches by now. He had seen the kinds of things that had crept into the churches that he had started. He had seen the opponents to the faith. And so he was not only encouraging them, he was also safeguarding their new faith. Um, A little side note here, too. It's fascinating to me that long before we had the coronavirus, People like Paul were strategic and intentional about doing things in order to start and encourage church growth, encourage faith building at a distance. Kind of neat how we have that example, even in this passage, that Paul had never even seen these people face to face, yet because of the intentionality and the ability to communicate with a written word, he was able to encourage them, and God uses that even today for us now because we have the book of Colossians to look at. Kind of neat. This church was in good order and firm faith. They had a great start. But let's continue to go in this letter here. So look at verse 6 with me. Verse 6 and 7 says this, Therefore, as you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. Again, when Paul says that word, therefore, what happened before? He established a few things. Jesus is the authority of all authorities. Jesus is the foundation of all foundations. The complete deity of God dwells bodily in this man. All the riches of the fullness and full assurance is in Jesus Christ. Everything is summed up into this man. And Paul is saying it is through him that you can be confident that you can have a relationship with God. And they now have this great freedom that Paul is saying, walk there. You see, this group of people had been transplanted into a new reality. They had been transplanted from a life that the Gentile lived, in which Paul calls in Ephesians and other places the futility in their thinking, that there was a darkness over them. Because when you live 
with the way the world lives, you get the results the world gets. And so we knew at this time in history, the world's results were not good, and they obviously are not now either. But now they've been transplanted into this relationship with Jesus Christ, rooted, established. And now Paul is saying, grow, walk in that direction. The truth is that Christ is all you need, and that changes everything. It changes everything. All of a sudden, this new way of thinking is a result from being in one foundation to the next. It's they are planted in to who God is. You see, change is hard, and human nature <laughs> is to start fast and struggle, right? Every New Year's, we have a resolution, right? That diet plan lasts till the next meal. That exercise routine happens for a little bit. The thing you weren't going to do just happens and then fades really quick. That it's really easy to have the enthusiasm and the excitement to start, but then as life moves on, we realize that things are difficult and are hard to do. And as a result, Paul knew, he saw, because he was mature in his faith, and he understood the Colossian church was going to face challenges. And so he was warning them a little bit here. He was understanding what was going on. We know from Ephesians 4, uh, 17, which is in the YouVersion app, by the way, if you're not following along in there, you don't have to look it up. I'll just explain it to you. But he is telling the Ephesian church, don't think like you used to think anymore. Don't think that way because you're not there anymore. Now you've been planted in Christ. You're rooted in Christ. So don't think like you're growing in a Gentile way of thinking. Grow this way. Paul also said in Galatians 5, 7 to the Galatian church because they had some issues. They started strong. But during that race, they stumbled, and Paul said this, You were running a good race who cut in on you to keep you from obeying the truth. You see, Paul knew that change is radical, especially a change when you decide to follow Jesus Christ. It's radical, and it's difficult, because all of a sudden, the way you look at life has to change, doesn't it? That we no longer think the same way that we used to think, because now we have Jesus Christ in our lives. And there are plenty of opponents that creep into their life. So let's look at verse 8 through 10 here in Colossians 2. Paul says this, See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. In Paul's day, much like in our day today, our challenge and our struggle, and to quote Paul's words in Ephesians, is not against flesh and blood. It's against the rulers and the authorities and the principalities and the powers of forces in the spiritual world. It's in our thinking. When you go all the way back to Adam and Eve, the serpent didn't force Eve to eat the apple. What did, she, what did she do? What did she receive from the serpent? She received a lie. He challenged her thinking. Well, did God really say that you shouldn't eat from this tree? I mean, does he not want you to be like him? From the very beginning, we see that opponents to our faith begin in our mind. That they start by thoughts planted in our head from the evil one. And Paul was no stranger to this. He understood that if anyone was going to challenge this new young church that was excited about their faith, it would be somebody who comes along and says, well, are you sure that's how you ought to think about Jesus? 
Are, are you sure it's not just Jesus and this other thing? Shouldn't you be thinking this way or that way? What about this elemental spirit of the world, which is a whole other conversation that I don't have time to preach on? But, but there are things going on in that day, and Paul's point was, don't let those change your thinking. Be laser-focused on Christ. Christ is all you need to know. And that is Paul's point. Christ is all you need to know. Think about Paul for a second. The Apostle Paul wrote half of the New Testament. He is a sharp man who understands how to orate in front of people. He understands how to argue, how to have conversation. He's incredibly wise and trained, and he, he knew all kinds of stuff. Yet, do you know how he thought about himself when he showed up to churches? In 1 Corinthians 2, 2, it says this, I resolved to know nothing among you except Christ and him crucified. I resolved to know nothing among you except Christ and him crucified. When Paul showed up to new believers, he didn't go off on the eloquence of his wisdom or talk about deep theological topics. He got into some of that occasionally. But his main point in thinking was how do I, when I'm with people, know this truth, Jesus and him crucified, and the result of that, which was his resurrection and our new opportunity for faith. Christ is all you need to know. And let me challenge you a little bit on this, okay? We live in a world that is right now dominated by the thinking of the coronavirus. Pretty soon it's going to be dominated, and if it already hasn't already, the landscape of politics. Sports can tend to dominate us, although right now, because none are going on, kind of a bummer this weekend, and maybe for a few weeks. But things can dominate our thinking, can't they? And all of a sudden, our conversations with each other are about this person and that person and this candidate or this sport and that thing. And, and, and we just think that way. What if? What if in our relationships with people, we only resolve to know about Christ and him crucified? How would that change the encouragement that we have? It would radically change our conversation, wouldn't it? Not that we should check our brains at the door and not be wise to the world and what is going on and not vote or not do the things that, that we're called to do as citizens of this country, but to put Christ first in our thinking and everything else second. That our lens that we look through is Christ. He is the one who safeguards our heart and our thinking, and all else falls under his authority, not the other way around. And Paul's challenging them on that, and I'm challenging you on that as well. 2 Corinthians 10.5 says it this way, Take captive every thought and make it obedient to Christ. Take captive every thought and make it obedient to Christ. Um, pastors are, are human too and have their own issues, and, uh, and anxiety is a big one for me, if I'm honest, that I, I'm a high anxious person. Um, I, I don't sleep well the night before I preach, so last night was a long night for me. If I have a lot of responsibility, my wife can tell you I am just thinking about that. I'm going it over my head, and anxiety can tend to be a big issue for me. And one of the verses that always helps me when I think about this is this particular verse in 1 Corinthians. In 2 Corinthians 10.5, that we take captive every thought, that I make it a habit of my life, that every time a thought comes into my head, Okay, maybe I need more toilet paper. Maybe I should run to the store and get more cans. Of, which, by the way, it's sanitizer Sunday, not just because of the fact that uh, it's the coronavirus, but also because none of you have toilet paper either. Um, but all these thoughts, they come into my mind, and I have to think, how do I make this obedient to Christ? How do I make Christ the Lord of this anxiety? That he's the one overseeing it, not me. That he's the one taking the burden, not me. Christ is all we need to know. 
He is the one who puts our government officials in the places that they are. Scripture is clear about that. It's our responsibility not to complain about them. It's our responsibility to pray for them and to do our duty as citizens. But again, that's a Christ-based thought. And that's how we ought to think, is how do we put him first? And how do we make our thoughts obedient to Christ? Let's continue on in Colossians. Verse 11 says this. In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God, who raised him from the dead, and you who were dead in trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Paul paints a picture of a beautiful convergence of physical and spiritual, of physical and supernatural in this moment. We know that circumcision and baptism are physical acts. In fact, uh, if you were here a few weeks ago, we actually did live baptisms, adult immersion baptisms here on stage. It was a beautiful picture. But it's not just physical, right? We know that. We know there is a spiritual reality going on as well in the midst of that. There's both physical and spiritual. And do you know where those two worlds came together in their most beautiful place? In the person of Jesus Christ. That he is the ultimate representation of all that is physical because he was born a man. And all that is spiritual because the fullness of deity dwells in him. And it is through him and Christ alone, Christ is all, that we experience a relationship with him. And Paul is laying that out. That regardless of the sacrament, regardless of the symbol of circumcision or baptism, regardless of any of those things, Jesus is the ultimate, and it is because of him and in him that we have salvation. Christ is all you need for salvation. Christ is all you need for salvation. And let me clarify that a little bit. It should read, Christ is all you needed for salvation. Why do I say that? Look at the text for a second. We were dead, we were made alive, we have been forgiven, nailed to the cross, the record was canceled, the rulers were disarmed. These are all past tense. These things happened. And the minute that we say yes to Jesus Christ, and we say my believing loyalties are to no one else but Christ, at that minute, you have crossed the line from life into death. That's what baptism shows us, right? That once you were dead, and now you are alive in Christ. That everything that we were, our old sinful fleshly nature, is now dead. And now we are alive to Christ. Salvation is something that has happened to you when you say yes to Jesus Christ. And maybe you're here today and you haven't crossed that line. Talk to me afterwards. Because once you do, it changes everything, doesn't it? But we were justified. We were made right before God in Christ and there is a little bit of already but not yet happening here too, isn't there? Because we have already been justified, but we have not yet experienced what a post-resurrection body would be like. Because we haven't seen Jesus face-to-face -face in his resurrection body, but we know he has one. 
after he came back, he did things like walk with two men to the road to Emmaus who weren't shocked that a man was walking there. So obviously his body was somewhat similar to ours. It didn't look that much different. He ate breakfast with the disciples on the shore as he challenged Peter if he loved him. This post-resurrection piece is yet to come, and it's exciting. But his physical death equals our spiritual life because he has been raised from the dead. Let's keep going in Colossians 2, verse 16. Therefore, because of all these things that have just been said, therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in question of food or drink, or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and worship of angels, going on in detail about visions puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind and not holding fast to the head from whom the whole body nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments grows with a growth that is from God. If with Christ you die to the elemental spirits of the world, why? As if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, referring to things that all perish as they are used, according to human precepts and teachings. These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism but and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. What is Paul saying here? He's saying this. You have a freedom in Christ, and it's not Christ plus something else. You see, in the background of this passage, what was happening, there were people telling the Jews, the Jews were telling these people that the Gentiles, they needed to be like Jews. They needed to do Jewish things. They needed to uh, observe all the rituals and the sacraments and so on and so forth in order to be saved. And Paul said, look, those things are valuable, but you don't need them for salvation. It would be like me saying this, man, my car ran out of gas. I think I need to add more gas or else I'm going to get my license taken away. It's foolish to even think that way. You know you don't lose your license if you run out of gas. You need to add more gas. Once you have crossed the line and you have said yes to Jesus Christ, you are saved. Your ongoing qualifications or the fuel is what you do as you pray, as you read God's word, as you worship together. Not doing those things doesn't disqualify you you don't need to do those things in order to be saved or else it's a work. But they fuel our relationship with God and they help us grow and grow quickly with him. You see, we don't fight for freedom. We fight from freedom. Christ has made us free. And that's where my challenge to you today is, Christ is all you need, but my question is, has that changed you? Has it changed you? Has it changed your thinking? Has it changed your living? Has it changed how you interact with people in conversation? We have a great opportunity right now that a whole bunch of people are scrambling because of this virus. What happens if they look at us and they're like, wow, that person's awfully peaceful even though this world is chaotic? And you can point to Christ and say, because he is my salvation. Psalm 73, 26, one of my favorite psalms, says this. Though my heart and my flesh may fail, God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. What does that mean? My heart may fail. Discouragement. Some days are discouraging. Though my heart may fail, God is the strength of my heart. Though my flesh may fail, we might end up getting sick. That's a reality. But God is my portion forever. We have him to lean on. So be encouraged. 
even if we don't meet next week or the week after or something changes in the way that we meet, we still have a firm foundation in Jesus Christ. Live that way. Live like something has changed because Christ is all you need. Would you bow with me as I have a closing prayer? God, over our congregation, over our community, and over our world, we pray your peace. We pray that it would be tangible, that people would recognize because of us that we love you and because of us that we trust you, that you, God, are our firm foundation in the midst of any chaos that this world experiences. And right now, God, you know what that is. You hold us in your hands. You understand who we are. You understand where we've been, where we're going. We trust in you. So, Lord, we pray that we would recognize that you are all we need, and may that change everything. In Jesus' name, amen. Now go in God's peace with a smile on your face and be excited that he is your firm foundation. Have a wonderful afternoon.